Section two of The Confidence Man. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by M. B. The Confidence Man, His Masquerade by Herman Melville. Chapter three, in which a variety of characters appear. In the forward part of the boat, not the least attractive object for a time was a grotesque negro cripple in tow-cloth attire and an old coal-sifter of a tambourine in his hand who owing to something wrong about his legs was in effect cut down to the stature of a newfoundland dog his knotted black fleece and good-natured honest black face rubbing against the upper part of people's thighs as he made shift to shuffle about making music such as it was and raising a smile even from the gravest it was curious to see him out of his very deformity indigence and houselessness so cheerily endured raising mirth in some of that crowd whose own purses hearths hearts all their possessions sound limbs included could not make gay what is your name old boy said a purple-faced drover putting his large purple hand on the cripple's bushy wool as if it were the curled forehead of a black steer the black guinea they calls me sar and who is your master guinea oh sar i am de dog without massa free dog eh well on your account i'm sorry for that guinea dogs without masters fare hard so they do sar so they do but you see sar these here legs what gentlemen want to own these here legs but where do you live all long shore sar though now i's going to see brother at der landin but chiefly i lives in the city st louis ah where do you sleep there of nights on der floor of de good baker's oven sar in an oven whose pray what baker i should like to know bakes such black bread in his oven alongside of his nice white rolls too who is that too charitable baker pray dar he be with a broad grin lifting his tambourine high over his head the sun is the baker eh yes sar in de city the good baker warms de stones for dis old darky when he sleeps out on de pavements o nights but that must be in the summer only old boy how about winter when the cold cossacks come clattering and jingling how about winter old boy den this poor old darky shakes very bad i tell you sar oh sir oh don't speak of the winter he added with a reminiscent shiver shuffling off into the thickest of the crowd like a half-frozen black sheep nudging itself a cosy berth in the heart of the white flock thus far not very many pennies had been given him and used at last to his strange looks the less polite passengers of those in that part of the boat began to get their fill of him as a curious object when suddenly the negro more than revived their first interest by an expedient which whether by chance or design was a singular temptation at once to diversion and charity though even more than his crippled limbs it put him on a canine footing in short as in appearance he seemed a dog so now in a merry way like a dog he began to be treated still shuffling among the crowd now and then he would pause throwing back his head and opening his mouth like an elephant for tossed apples at a menagerie 
when, making a space before him, people would have about at a strange sort of pitchpenny game, the cripple's mouth being at once target and purse, and he hailing each expertly caught copper with a cracked bravura from his tambourine. To be the subject of almsgiving is trying, and to feel in duty bound to appear cheerfully grateful under the trial must be still more so. But whatever his secret emotions, he swallowed them, while still retaining each copper this side the esophagus, and nearly always he grinned, and only once or twice did he wince, which was when certain coins tossed by more playful almoners came inconveniently nigh to his teeth, an accident whose unwelcomeness was not unedged by the circumstance that the pennies thus thrown proved buttons. While this game of charity was yet at its height, a limping, gimlet-eyed, sour-faced person, it may be some discharged custom-house officer who, suddenly stripped of convenient means of support, had concluded to be avenged on government and humanity by making himself miserable for life, either by hating or suspecting everything and everybody. This shallow unfortunate, after sundry sorry observations of the negro, began to croak out something about his deformity being a sham, got up for financial purposes, which immediately threw a damp upon the frolic benignities of the pitchpenny players. But that these suspicions came from one who himself on a wooden leg went halt, this did not appear to strike anybody present. That cripples above all men should be companionable, or at least refrain from picking a fellow limper to pieces, in short, should have a little sympathy in common misfortune, seemed not to occur to the company. Meantime the negro's countenance, before marked with even more than patient good-nature, drooped into a heavy-hearted expression full of the most painful distress. So far abased beneath its proper physical level, that Newfoundland dog face turned in passively hopeless appeal, as if instinct told it that the right or the wrong might not have overmuch to do with whatever wayward mood superior intelligences might yield to. But instinct, though knowing, is yet a teacher set below reason, which itself says in the grave words of Lysander in the comedy, after Puck has made a sage of him with his spell, The will of man is by his reason swayed, so that suddenly change as people may in their dispositions, it is not always waywardness, but improved judgment which, as in Lysander's case or the present, operates with them. Yes, they began to scrutinize the negro curiously enough. When, emboldened by this evidence of the efficacy of his words, the wooden-legged man hobbled up to the negro and, with the air of a beadle, would, to prove his alleged imposture on the spot, have stripped him and then driven him away, but was prevented by the crowd's clamor, now taking part with the poor fellow, against one who had just before turned nearly all minds the other way. So he with the wooden leg was forced to retire. When the rest, finding themselves left sole judges in the case, could not resist the opportunity of acting the part, not because it is a human weakness to take pleasure in sitting in judgment upon one in a box, as surely this unfortunate negro now was, but that it strangely sharpens human perceptions, when, instead of standing by and having their fellow-feelings touched by the sight of an alleged culprit severely handled by some one justiciary, 
a crowd suddenly come to be all justiciaries in the same case themselves. As in Arkansas once a man proved guilty by law of murder, but whose condemnation was deemed unjust by the people, so that they rescued him to try him themselves, whereupon they, as it turned out, found him even guiltier than the court had done, and forthwith proceeded to execution, so that the gallows presented the truly warning spectacle of a man hanged by his friends. But not to such extremities or anything like them did the present crowd come, they for the time being content with putting the negro fairly and discreetly to the question, among other things asking him had he any documentary proof, any plain paper about him, attesting that his case was not a spurious one. No, no, this poor old darky hain't none of them wallable papers, he wailed. But is there not some one who can speak a good word for you? Here said a person newly arrived from another part of the boat, a young Episcopal clergyman, in a long, straight-bodied black coat, small in stature but manly, with a clear face and blue eye, innocence, tenderness, and good sense triumvirate in his air. "'Oh, yes, oh, yes, gentlemen,' he eagerly answered, as if his memory, before suddenly frozen up by cold charity, as suddenly thawed back into fluidity at the first kindly word. "'Oh, yes, oh, yes, there is aboard here a very nice good gentleman with a weed, and a gentleman in a gray coat and white tie what knows all about me, and a gentleman with a big book, too, and a yarb doctor, and a gentleman in a yellow vest, and a gentleman with a brass plate, and a gentleman in a wilet robe, and a gentleman as is a soldier, and ever so many good, kind, honest gentlemen more aboard what knows me and will speak for me, God bless em. Yes, and what knows me as well as this poor old darky knows hisself. God bless him. Oh, find him, find him, he earnestly added, and let him come quick and show you all, gentlemen, that this poor old darky is very well worthy of all you kind gentlemen's kind confidence. But how are we to find all these people in this great crowd, was the question of a bystander umbrella in hand, a middle-aged person, a country merchant, apparently, whose natural good feeling had been made at least cautious by the unnatural ill-feeling of the discharged custom-house officer. "'Where are we to find them?' half-rebukefully echoed the young Episcopal clergyman. "'I will go find one to begin with,' he quickly added, and with kind haste, suiting the action to the word, away he went. "'Wild goose chase!' croaked he with the wooden leg, now again drawing nigh. "'Don't believe there's a soul of them aboard!' Did ever beggar have such heaps of fine friends? He can walk fast enough when he tries, a good deal faster than I. But he can lie yet faster. He's some white operator, betwisted and painted up for a decoy. He and his friends are all humbugs. Have you no charity, friend? Here in self-subdued tones, singularly contrasted with his unsubdued person, said a Methodist minister advancing. A tall, muscular, martial-looking man, a Tennessean by birth, who in the Mexican War had been volunteer chaplain to a volunteer rifle regiment. "'Charity is one thing, and truth is another,' rejoined he with the wooden leg. "'He's a rascal, I say!' "'But why not, friend, put as charitable a construction as one can upon the poor fellow?' said the soldier-like Methodist, with increased difficulty maintaining a pacific demeanor towards one whose own asperity seemed so little to entitle him to it. 
He looks honest, doesn't he? Looks are one thing and facts are another, snapped out the other perversely. And as to your constructions, what construction can you put upon a rascal but that a rascal he is? Be not such a Canada thistle, urged the Methodist, with something less of patience than before. Charity, man, charity! To where it belongs with your charity, to heaven with it! Again snapped out the other diabolically. Here on earth true charity dotes and false charity plots. Who betrays a fool with a kiss? The charitable fool has the charity to believe is in love with him, and the charitable knave on the stand gives charitable testimony for his comrade in the box. Surely, friend, returned the noble Methodist, with much ado restraining his still waxing indignation, surely, to say the least, you forget yourself. Apply it home, he continued with exterior calmness, tremulous with inkept emotion. Suppose now I should exercise no charity in judging your own character by the words which have fallen from you. What sort of vile, pitiless man do you think I would take you for? No doubt, with a grin, some such pitiless man as has lost his piety, in much the same way the jockey loses his honesty. And how is that, friend? still conscientiously holding back the old Adam in him, as if it were a mastiff he had by the neck. Never you mind how much it is, with a sneer, but all horses ain't virtuous, no more than all mankind, and come close to and much dealt with, some things are catching. When you find me a virtuous jockey, I will find you a benevolent wise man. Some insinuation there. More fool that you are puzzled by it. Reprobate, cried the other, his indignation now at last almost boiling over. Godless reprobate, if charity did not restrain me, I could call you by names you deserve. Could you indeed? With an insolent sneer. Yes, and teach you charity on the spot, cried the goaded Methodist, suddenly catching his exasperating opponent by his shabby coat-collar and shaking him till his timber-toe clattered on the deck like a nine-pin. You took me for a non-combatant, did you? Though, seedy coward that you are, you could abuse a Christian with impunity. You find your mistake, with another hearty shake. Well said and better done, church militant, cried a voice. The white cravat against the world, cried another. Bravo, bravo, chorused many voices, with like enthusiasm taking sides with the resolute champion. You fools, cried he with the wooden leg, writhing himself loose and inflamedly turning upon the throng. You flock of fools, under this captain of fools, in this ship of fools. With which exclamations, followed by idle threats against his admonisher, this condign victim to justice hobbled away, as disdaining to hold further argument with such a rabble. But his scorn was more than repaid by the hisses that chased him, in which the brave Methodist, satisfied with the rebuke already administered, was, to omit still better reasons, too magnanimous to join. All he said was, pointing towards the departing recusant, there he shambles off on his one lone leg, emblematic of his one-sided view of humanity. "'But trust your painted decoy,' retorted the other from a distance, pointing back to the black cripple, 
and I have my revenge. But we ain't a-goin' to trust him, shouted back a voice. So much the better, he jeered back. Look you, he added, coming to a dead halt where he was. Look you, I have been called a Canada thistle. Very good, and a seedy one, still better. And the shady Canada thistle has been pretty well shaken among ye, best of all. Dare say some seed has been shaken out, and won't it spring, though, and when it does spring, do you cut down the young thistles, and won't they spring the more? It's encouraging and coaxing em. Now, when with my thistles your farms shall be well stocked, why then, you may abandon em. What does all that mean now? asked the country merchant, staring. Nothing. The foiled wolf's parting howl, said the Methodist. Spleen, much spleen, which is the rickety child of his evil heart of unbelief. It has made him mad. I suspect him for one naturally reprobate. Oh, friends, raising his arms as in the pulpit. Oh, beloved, how we are admonished by the melancholy spectacle of this raver. Let us profit by the lesson. And is it not this, that if, next to mistrusting providence, there be aught that man should pray against, it is mistrusting his fellow man? I have been in madhouses full of tragic mopers, and seen there the end of suspicion, the cynic in the moody madness muttering in the corner, for years a barren fixture there, head lopped over, gnawing his own lip, vulture of himself while by fits and starts from the corner opposite came the grimace of the idiot at him what an example whispered one might deter timon was the response oh oh good gentlemen have you no confidence in this poor old darkey now wailed the returning negro who during the late scene had stumped apart in alarm confidence in you echoed he who had whispered with abruptly changed air turning short round that remains to be seen i tell you what it is ebony in similarly changed tones said he who had responded to the whisperer yonder churl pointing toward the wooden leg in the distance is no doubt a churlish fellow enough and i would not wish to be like him but that is no reason why you may not be some sort of black jeremy diddler no confidence in this poor old darky den before giving you our confidence said a third we will wait the report of the kind gentleman who went in search of one of your friends who was to speak for you very likely in that case said a fourth we shall wait here till christmas shouldn't wonder did we not see that kind gentleman again after seeking a while in vain he will conclude he has been made a fool of and so not return to us for pure shame fact is i begin to feel a little qualmish about the darky myself something queer about this darky depend upon it once more the negro wailed and turning in despair from the last speaker imploringly caught the methodist by the skirt of his coat but a change had come over that before impassioned intercessor with an irresolute and troubled air he mutely eyed the suppliant against whom somehow by what seemed instinctive influences 
the distrusts first set on foot were now generally reviving, and, if anything, with added severity. "'No confidence in this poor old darky!' yet again wailed the negro, letting go the coat-skirts and turning appealingly all round him. "'Yes, my poor fellow, I have confidence in you,' now exclaimed the country merchant before named, whom the negro's appeal, coming so piteously on the heel of pitilessness, seemed at last humanely to have decided in his favor. And here, here is some proof of my trust, with which, tucking his umbrella under his arm and diving down his hand into his pocket, he fished forth a purse, and, accidentally along with it, his business card, which, unobserved, dropped to the deck. Here, here, my poor fellow, he continued, extending a half-dollar. Not more grateful for the coin than the kindness, the cripple's face glowed like a polished copper saucepan, and shuffling a pace nigher, with one upstretched hand, he received the alms, while, as unconsciously, his one advanced leather stump covered the card. Done in despite of the general sentiment, the good deed of the merchant was not, perhaps, without its unwelcome return from the crowd, since that good deed seemed somehow to convey to them a sort of reproach. Still again, and more pertinaciously than ever, the cry arose against the negro, and still again he wailed forth his lament and appeal, among other things, repeating that the friends, of whom already he had partially run off the list, would freely speak for him, would anybody go find them. "'Why don't you go yourself?' demanded a gruff boatman. "'How could I go find him myself? This poor old game-legged darkies' friends must come to him. Oh, whar! Where is that good friend of this darkies, that good man with the weed?' At this point a steward ringing a bell came along, summoning all persons who had not got their tickets to step up to the captain's office, an announcement which speedily thinned the throng about the black cripple, who himself soon forlornly stumped out of sight, probably on much the same errand as the rest. CHAPTER Four: RENEWAL OF OLD ACQUAINTANCE "'How do you do, Mr. Roberts?' "'Eh?' "'Don't you know me?' "'No, certainly.' The crowd about the captain's office, having in good time melted away, the above encounter took place in one of the side balconies astern, between a man in mourning, clean and respectable, but none of the glossiest, a long weed on his hat, and the country merchant before mentioned, whom, with the familiarity of an old acquaintance, the former had accosted. "'Is it possible, my dear sir,' resumed he with the weed, "'that you do not recall my countenance? "'Why, yours I recall distinctly, as if but half an hour "'instead of half an age had passed since I saw you. "'Don't you recall me now? Look harder.' "'In my conscience, truly, I protest,' honestly bewildered. "'Bless my soul, sir, I don't know you. Really, really. Uh, but, but stay, stay, he hurriedly added, not without gratification, glancing up at the crape on the stranger's hat. Uh, stay, yes, seems to me, though I have not the pleasure of personally knowing you, yet I am pretty sure I have at least heard of you, and recently, too, quite recently. A poor negro aboard here referred to you, among others, for a character, I think. Oh, the cripple. 
Poor fellow, I know him well. They found me. I have said all I could for him. I think I abated their distrust. Would I could have been of more substantial service. And, apropos, sir, he added, now that it strikes me, allow me to ask whether the circumstance of one man, however humble, referring for a character to another man, however afflicted, does not argue more or less of moral worth in the latter. The good merchant looked puzzled. Still, you don't recall my countenance. Still does truth compel me to say that I cannot, despite my best efforts, was the reluctantly candid reply. Can I be so changed? Look at me, or is it I who am mistaken? Are you not Sir Henry Roberts, forwarding merchant of Wheeling, Pennsylvania? Pray, now, if you use the advertisement of business cards and happen to have one with you, just look at it and see whether you are not the man I take you for. Why, a bit chafed, perhaps, I hope I know myself. And yet self-knowledge is thought by some not so easy. Who knows, my dear sir, but for a time you may have taken yourself for somebody else. Stranger things have happened. The good merchant stared. To come to particulars, my dear sir, I met you now some six years back at Braid Brothers and Company's office, I think. I was traveling for a Philadelphia house. The senior Braid introduced us, you remember. Some business chat followed, then you forced me home with you to a family tea, and a family time we had. Have you forgotten about the urn, and what I said about Werther's Charlotte, and the bread and butter, and that capital story you told me of the large loaf? A hundred times since I have laughed over it. At least you must recall my name. Ringman. John Ringman. Large loaf? Invited you to tea? Ringman? Ringman? Ring? Ring? Ah, sir, sadly smiling, don't ring the changes that way. I see you have a faithless memory, Mr. Roberts, but trust in the faithfulness of mine. Well, to tell the truth, in some things my memory ain't of the very best, was the honest rejoinder. But still, he perplexedly added, still I, oh, sir, suffice it that it is as I say, doubt not that we are well acquainted. But, but I don't like this going dead against my own memory. I, but didn't you admit, my dear sir, that in some things this memory of yours is a little faithless? Now, those who have faithless memories, should they not have some little confidence in the less faithless memories of others? But of this friendly chat and tea I have not the slightest. I see, I see, quite erased from the tablet. Pray, sir, with a sudden illumination, about six years back did it happen to you to receive any injury on the head? Surprising effects have arisen from such a cause. Not alone unconsciousness as to events for a greater or less time immediately subsequent to the injury, but likewise, strange to add, oblivion, entire and incurable as to events embracing a longer or shorter period immediately preceding it, that is, when the mind at the time was perfectly sensible of them, and fully competent also to register in the memory, and did in fact do so, but all in vain, for all was afterwards bruised out by the injury. After the first start, 
the merchant listened with what appeared more than ordinary interest the other proceeded in my boyhood i was kicked by a horse and lay insensible for a long time upon recovering what a blank no faintest trace in regard to how i had come near the horse or what horse it was or where it was or that it was a horse at all that had brought me to that pass for the knowledge of these particulars i am indebted solely to my friends in whose statements i need not say i place implicit reliance since particulars of some sort there must have been and why should they deceive me you see sir the mind is ductile very much so but images ductilely received into it need a certain time to harden and bake in their impressions otherwise such a casualty as i speak of will in an instant obliterate them as though they had never been we are but clay sir potter's clay as the good book says clay feeble and too yielding clay but i will not philosophize tell me was it your misfortune to receive any concussion upon the brain about the period i speak of if so i will with pleasure supply the void in your memory by more minutely rehearsing the circumstances of our acquaintance the growing interest betrayed by the merchant had not relaxed as the other proceeded after some hesitation indeed something more than hesitation he confessed that though he had never received any injury of the sort named yet about the time in question he had in fact been taken with a brain fever losing his mind completely for a considerable interval he was continuing when the stranger with much animation exclaimed there now you see i was not wholly mistaken that brain fever accounts for it all nay but pardon me mr roberts respectfully interrupting him but time is short and i have something private and particular to say to you allow me mr roberts good man could but acquiesce and the two having silently walked to a less public spot the manner of the man with the weed suddenly assumed a seriousness almost painful what might be called a writhing expression stole over him he seemed struggling with some disastrous necessity inkept he made one or two attempts to speak but words seemed to choke him his companion stood in humane surprise wondering what was to come at length with an effort mastering his feelings in a tolerably composed tone he spoke if i remember you are a mason mr roberts yes yes averting himself a moment as to recover from a return of agitation the stranger grasped the other's hand and would you not loan a brother a shilling if he needed it the merchant started apparently almost as if to retreat ah mr roberts i trust you are not one of those business men who make a business of never having to do with unfortunates for god's sake don't leave me i have something on my heart on my heart under deplorable circumstances thrown among strangers utter strangers i want a friend in whom i may confide yours mr roberts is almost the first known face i've seen for many weeks it was so sudden an outburst the interview offered such a contrast to the scene around that the merchant though not used to be very indiscreet yet being not entirely inhumane remained not entirely unmoved the other still tremulous resumed i need not say sir how it cuts me to the soul to follow up a social salutation with such words as have just been mine 
I know that I jeopardize your good opinion, but I can't help it. Necessity knows no law, and heeds no risk. Sir, we are masons. One more step aside. I will tell you my story. In a low, half-suppressed tone, he began it. Judging from his auditor's expression, it seemed to be a tale of singular interest, involving calamities against which no integrity, no forethought, no energy, no genius, no piety could guard. At every disclosure the hearer's commiseration increased. No sentimental pity. As the story went on, he drew from his wallet a banknote, but after a while, at some still more unhappy revelation, changed it for another, probably of a somewhat larger amount, which, when the story was concluded, with an air studiously disclamatory of almsgiving, he put into the stranger's hands, who, on his side, with an air studiously disclamatory of alms-taking, put it into his pocket. Assistance being received, the stranger's manner assumed a kind and degree of decorum which, under the circumstances, seemed almost coldness. After some words, not over-ardent, and yet not exactly inappropriate, he took leave, making a bow which had one knows not what of a certain chastened independence about it, as if misery, however burdensome, could not break down self-respect, nor gratitude, however deep, humiliate a gentleman. He was hardly yet out of sight when he paused as if thinking, then, with hastened steps returning to the merchant, I am just reminded that the president, who is also transfer agent of the Black Rapids Coal Company, happens to be on board here, and having been subpoenaed as witness in a stock case on the docket in Kentucky, has his transfer book with him. A month since, in a panic contrived by artful alarmists, some credulous stockholders sold out. But to frustrate the aim of the alarmists, the company, previously advised of their scheme, so managed it as to get into its own hands those sacrificed shares, resolved that, since a spurious panic must be, the panic-makers should be no gainers by it. The company, I hear, is now ready, but not anxious, to redispose of those shares, and having obtained them at their depressed value, will now sell them at par, though prior to the panic they were held at a handsome figure above. That the readiness of the company to do this is not generally known is shown by the fact that the stock still stands on the transfer book in the company's name, offering to one in funds a rare chance for investment. For the panic subsiding more and more every day, it will daily be seen how it originated. Confidence will be more than restored. There will be a reaction. From the stock's descent, its rise will be higher than from no fall the holders trusting themselves to fear no second fate. Having listened at first with curiosity, at last with interest, the merchant replied to the effect that, some time since, through friends concerned with it, he had heard of the company and heard well of it, but was ignorant that there had latterly been fluctuations. He added that he was no speculator, that hitherto he had avoided having to do with stocks of any sort, but in the present case he really felt something like being tempted. Pray, in conclusion, do you think that upon a pinch anything could be transacted on board here with the transfer agent? Are you acquainted with him? Not personally, but I happened to hear that he was a passenger. For the rest, though it might be somewhat informal, 
the gentleman might not object to doing a little business on board along the mississippi you know business is not so ceremonious as at the east true returned the merchant and looked down a moment in thought then raising his head quickly said in a tone not so benign as his wonted one this would seem a rare chance indeed why upon first hearing it did you not snatch at it i, I mean for yourself i would it had been possible not without some emotion was this said and not without some embarrassment was the reply ah yes i had forgotten upon this the stranger regarded him with mild gravity not a little disconcerting the more so as there was in it what seemed the aspect not alone of the superior but as it were the rebuker which sort of bearing in a beneficiary towards his benefactor looked strangely enough none the less that somehow it sat not altogether unbecomingly upon the beneficiary being free from anything like the appearance of assumption and mixed with a kind of painful conscientiousness as though nothing but a proper sense of what he owed to himself swayed him at length he spoke to reproach a penniless man with remissness in not availing himself of an opportunity for pecuniary investment but no no it was forgetfulness and this charity will impute to some lingering effect of that unfortunate brain fever which as to occurrences dating yet further back disturbed mr roberts's memory still more seriously as to that said the merchant rallying i am not uh, pardon me you must admit that just now an unpleasant distrust however vague was yours ah shallow as it is yet how subtle a thing is suspicion which at times can invade the humanest of hearts and wisest of heads but enough my object sir in calling your attention to this stock is by way of acknowledgment of your goodness i seek but to be grateful if my information leads to nothing you must remember the motive he bowed and finally retired leaving mr roberts not wholly without self-reproach for having momentarily indulged injurious thoughts against one who it was evident was possessed of a self-respect which forbade his indulging them himself End of section two